This week on Huckabee, Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey, Big Daddy Jeff Wayne, Huck's hero Blake Brewer, singer-songwriter Nico Moon. That's Trey Corley of the Music City Connection. And I'm your announcer, Keith Bilbrey. Welcome, everyone. I want to begin with a rather somber note today, because the week before Christmas, I traveled to war-torn Israel to meet with Israeli officials, soldiers in the battle, survivors of the unprovoked Hamas terrorist massacre of civilians, and families of hostages that were taken by Hamas on October the 7th. I've been traveling to Israel for over 50 years. My first trip there was in July of 1973. I've been there close to 100 times. I've taken thousands of people there on pilgrimage. I've been there during conflicts, including an intifada and the 2014 war with Gaza. But this trip was unlike any other I've taken. Joel Rosenberg, the best-selling author and host of the Rosenberg Report right here on TBN, co-hosted a small delegation that included former senator and governor of Kansas and U.S. Ambassador Sam Brownback, former U.S. Ambassador Ken Blackwell, and Skip Heitzig, Samaritan's Purse board member, and his wife, Linya Heitzig, a noted author and speaker. While on the flight there on El Al Airlines, which is the only airline flying into Israel from the U.S. right now, a flight attendant recognized me and hugged me for traveling there to show support. And a couple whose 22-year-old son who's also an American citizen and has been held hostage since October the 7th, came to me on the plane to thank me for going and standing with Israel. They gave me a dog tag in honor of their son, who they had not heard from or about in over 74 days at that time. I have worn it since then. It's on me now. And it's going to stay on me until he comes home to them. Hostages from over 25 countries in every religion were taken hostage by Hamas. A hostage village was set up in Tel Aviv. Families can gather there. People of Israel go and pray for those families. I found the poster for Omer Nutra. That's the young man whose parents I had met the day before on the flight. I took a picture of me standing with the poster of their son, and I sent it to them and said, I won't forget him. That day, we also met with several families whose loved ones are being held hostage. It was heartbreaking to hear firsthand their grief, uncertainty, and bewilderment as to why their children, brothers, or their parents had been taken from them. They all hope for the best, but understandably fear the worst. We visited the front lines of the war zone and walked through the devastated kibbutz of Kafar Aza, one of the first communities savagely attacked by Hamas. The barbarian atrocities that were inflicted upon babies, little children, young families, and elderly people, most of them are unmentionable on TV. 
You've heard some of the ways that Hamas sought to murder, mutilate, rape, and humiliate civilian Jews who were simply waking up on a Shabbat morning to the sound of bullets, bombs, and rockets. But it actually was much worse. The uncivilized and crazed killing was made worse by the fact that the terrorists of Hamas wore cameras on their bodies to record the slaughter and celebrate it with great glee. Imagine how depraved one must be to place a live baby in an oven in front of its parents and to joyfully murder the entire family, children first, then the parents, but only after violently raping the females and mutilating their bodies. And with body parts and dead bodies strewn about the blood-stained homes, demon-filled Hamas terrorists then casually raided refrigerators and cabinets for food or just went through their homes for possessions of value. And when the so-called peaceful Palestinians from Gaza knew that the villages had been neutralized from any living Jew, they themselves crossed over and looted the homes, even while the corpse of the families were still there. These folks had to step across the butchered bodies to grab what valuables they could steal from the very people those monsters had just killed hours earlier. I met with an Israeli major who I'd met last August when he escorted me through the military base where the military dogs are trained. These highly trained dogs are a major part of the forward operating mission to root out Hamas cowards who are hiding in the tunnels of Gaza. I also met with my dear friend and the CEO of the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews, Yale Eckstein, Eckstein who you see on our show because the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews is one of our show's faithful partners. While at lunch in Tel Aviv, sirens forced us to take cover in the bomb shelter at the restaurant where we were having lunch. We could hear the Israeli Iron Dome defense system intercept Hamas rockets overhead that were intended to kill Jewish civilians. Thank God the Iron Dome worked. Israelis deal with that several times a day, every single day. Day. Once was enough for me. I also met with my longtime friend, the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. I assured him of the support of the Christian community of America for Israel and the Jewish people during this time of need. I personally can't think of anyone who could better lead Israel during this critical threat to their existence than this Prime Minister. Well, the trip was so intense, I didn't have time to process all I had seen and heard. And it was not until I got home did the emotional impact begin to sink in. Throughout the Christmas festivities with my church and family, I sometimes suddenly was just filled with unexplained emotion and fought back tears hidden deep in my soul that were there for many of my Jewish and Israeli friends who were going through a living hell that erupted from the very heart of Satan. We're witnessing something that isn't political. It's not social, economic, or geographical. It is a spiritual war of evil versus good. And my only comfort is in reading the end of the book and knowing that in the end, God overcomes. Evil, death, and hate will be forevermore relegated to an everlasting hell. And those of us who have placed our trust in our very lives in the hands of the one God, the true God, will forever experience 
an everlasting life. Well, we hope that despite so many tragedies around the world, that you were able to have a wonderful holiday, and we're glad you could be with us tonight. Right now, Keith Bilbrey is going to tell us what we have in store for the rest of the evening. Keith, take it away. Coming up, Missouri's Attorney General Andrew Bailey defends free speech. Then later, country music sensation Nico Moon performs. You're watching Huckabee. MikeHuckabee.com and sign up for his free newsletter and follow at GovMikeHuckabee on X. And welcome back. My next guest has a proven track record defending free speech from its enemies. In his first year as Missouri Attorney General, he has sued the Biden administration for their censorship schemes in a case that will be heard by the Supreme Court. Now he's turning his attention to another target, a virulent left-wing organization called Media Matters, for their efforts to shut down free speech on X, formerly known as Twitter. I want you to give a great big welcome to Missouri's Attorney General Andrew Bailey. General, good to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Most people probably never even heard of Media Matters, but tell us what it is that they're doing that you find very, uh, not just offensive, but destructive to our way of life and, and to freedom in this country. Well, I, I, Governor, I think it's important that we start by addressing the fact that the First Amendment right to free speech is the bedrock of who we are as a nation. And Missouri's been in that fight since I've been Attorney General and will continue to be in that fight. This is about protecting Missourians from deceptive, fraudulent schemes to manipulate the marketplace to attack the last platform dedicated to free speech in America. The evidence that we've uncovered and that has been presented in other lawsuits is that Media Matters, a radical, progressive, tyrannical group yeah. masquerading as a news outlet, they're a 501c3, not a news outlet, that they took controversial speech and juxtaposed it with prominent advertisers on X in order to bully those advertisers into pulling out of X. Now, the question is, why would a 501c3 masquerading as a media outlet want to manipulate the marketplace to do that? They can't control Twitter X, so they hate it. And that's the problem. They're attacking the last platform dedicated to free speech in America. And we can't let them deceive Missourians in the, in the process of them manipulating the market. But in the course of doing this, you're really fighting for every American. It's not just the people of your state that are going to benefit from this lawsuit. You're showing that there is a concerted effort, use the word conspiracy, I guess, uh, if you would, to try to silence the voices of dissent against the deep state actors who would absolutely shut down the voices of anybody who disagrees with their left-wing nonsense. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. You know, the First Amendment protects the battlefield of ideas. Hmm. We're competing viewpoints. I love that phrase, battlefield of ideas. But, Haven't heard that before. I'm going to quote you often. Well, I, I, Unlike Claudine Gray at Harvard, I will, Colleen Gray, <laughs> I will actually give you credit for the comment, though. The, it's cowards who can't win with their ideas mm. on the battlefield of ideas who have to suppress speech. And that, that's acknowledged by the First Amendment. Uh, we put a stop to 
President Biden's vast censorship enterprise, in the case of Missouri v. Biden, which will be heard at the United States Supreme Court here in the coming days. But this is a new front in the war for free speech, where, again, radical progressive groups masquerading as not-for-profits will use corporate pressure campaigns to attack anyone they disagree with. They can't win the debate, so they have to silence voices in opposition. We can't let that happen. This is a fight worth making here and now. And, and that's kind of what we're seeing with the whole effort at the part of states like Colorado and Maine to disqualify Donald Trump from the ballot. They're afraid they can't defeat him with votes. So if they disqualify him, make it impossible for people to vote for someone they want to vote for, they win the election by default. I mean, when I hear Joe Biden talk about threats to democracy, I'm thinking, what is a greater threat than that? Yeah, dr dripping with irony, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the very people that claim to be trying to protect our democratic republic are the ones undermining the rule of law that protects all of us equally in an attempt to achieve a, a, a radical uh, left-wing political objective. And it's, it's harmful. It's harmful to who, it's not, it's not who we are as Americans. So what can you hope to win in the lawsuit? If, if, if you succeed in this lawsuit against Media Matters, what happens then? Well, again, it, at the end of the day, we're going to use the, the tools, the law at our disposal, the laws that are on the books today. We're going to protect Missourians from a fraudulent scheme. If this 501c3 was soliciting contributions from Missourians under false pretenses, the state statute, we can use that to hold them accountable. But there's a bigger issue here. And again, this is about uh, a conspiracy to form a combination and restraint of trade, which violates antitrust laws. Yeah. This is a radical progressive group that is manipulating the marketplace. Who benefited from that? And we need answers to those questions to determine which body of law best applies to the facts. Isn't this election interference, uh, General? I mean, when I think about what we're talking about, if a media company can suppress information that would help voters make an informed decision, and if they can then give them utter misinformation that would make them think that this side is doing great things, that Bidenomics is working, whatever they wanted to present, it could be the other side. But the point is, what in the world is that if it isn't election interference? Well, I think why isn't there some charge for um, not filing election law uh, requirements because they are electioneering at that point. I completely agree. And, you know, that's why the case of Missouri v. Biden was so important. We uncovered that uh, the Department of Justice was in possession of the Hunter Biden laptop one year before the 2020 election and certainly knew of its authenticity, yet planted the seed of doubt in big tech social media that there was going to be a Russian disinformation campaign related to Hunter Biden. And so the big tech was more than willing to censor that story on the eve of the election. Again, that was information the American voting public needed to have as they moved to the ballot box. So the deep state has already proven that they will manipulate information and deprive Americans of information to interfere with our elections. What the Missouri v. Biden suit is all about is ultimately building a wall of separation between tech and state to protect our First Amendment rights from government censorship. But again, Media Matters has presented a new front in this war. This is a guerrilla operation. Yeah. We're no longer fighting conventional linear combat against a known enemy. They are manipulating a marketplace. So I completely agree with you. As state attorneys general, we've got to remain vigilant in this fight to protect the citizens of our states and our constitutional freedoms. You know, the real battle that's going on that I see in America right now is not happening in Washington. It's not being done by the House members or Senate, God bless their souls. It's being done at the state level by attorneys general across the country who are filing the lawsuits that are forcing information to come forward. I don't think a lot of Americans understand that's where the battlefield has become.
Yeah, completely agree. I think that, uh, you know, in, in all sorts of different fronts, it's uh, certainly the, the fight for our constitutional freedoms uh, and the First Amendment being one of those. Uh, we see that in the context of the Second Amendment as well. Uh, but it's also against the rise of the administrative state. There is no sanction in the United States Constitution for a fourth branch of government that has rulemaking authority, rule enforcing authority, and rule interpreting authority. I didn't vote for the undersecretary of the EPA, and yet somehow that person has a lot of uh, power and control over how we live our daily lives. And so it's important that state attorneys general use the power of the judicial process to keep that in check and to prevent federal overreach uh, by the administrative state. This case that's before the Supreme Court, the one that uh, will deal with companies like Facebook and others that conspired with the government and they sat down and figured out, okay, here's what we need to tell the American people. What's the impact of that? I think it's enormous. Again, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals has opined that this is the biggest First Amendment suit in this nation's history. You know, uh, we've done preliminary discovery, 20,000 pages of documents, numerous depositions. We've uncovered a relationship of coercion and collusion between federal officials and big tech social media targeting conservative voices exclusively for censorship. Uh, what the Fifth Circuit Court found, well, first of all, we put on evidence back in May, obtained a nationwide injunction. Again, the first brick in that wall of separation between tech and state to protect our right to free speech. Uh, we've successfully defended it at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals twice. And what the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals found was that those censorship algorithms that were changed to, to boot conservatives yeah. off of big tech, uh, those were done to satisfy the federal officials' demands. So nothing short of the, the soul of our nation, our ability to have free, fair, and open debate is at stake in this case, and I'm confident in our ultimate success on this, on this issue. It is disturbing beyond my description to think that the federal government has sat down and told a media company, here's what you need to do to silence the voices of people who disagree with us, the government. I mean, what kind of world is that? That's third world banana republic stuff. General, I wanna tell you, I, I'm not kidding. It's what you guys are doing at the state level, filing these lawsuits, getting the information, forcing it to go to an open court that is maybe the most important way to save this great republic. God bless you and thank you for your efforts. I hope America appreciates what you're doing for us. Thank you, Governor. Thank God you. bless you. I have a feeling you're going to want to keep up with Attorney General Andrew Bailey on social media. He's fighting for you to protect all of us and uphold the Constitution. To get more information, go to Huckabee.tv. We'll give you the details and tell you how to connect. Right now, Keith Bilbrey is going to tell us what we have coming up later in this evening. Well, hilarious comedian Jeff Big Daddy Wayne is next. Then a very special Huck's hero is still to come. It's all tonight on Huckabee. Welcome back. Tonight's comedian is making his second appearance here. Ever since he was with us before, I've been begging to get him back. His dry bar comedy special is called Big Daddy Kicks It. And by the way, he got that nickname from none other than Billy Crystal and Robin Williams. His audiobook is called Raconteur. It's an Amazon bestseller. And he's going to be the headline act at the Ahern Luxury Boutique Hotel in Las Vegas 
February the 1st through the 3rd. I want you to welcome back to the show, Jeff Big Daddy Wayne. Trey and the band, Keith and the governor, ladies and gentlemen, Big Daddy is here. I'm originally from Newport, Kentucky. Little, there we go, the town's empty tonight, isn't it? Just a little river town opposite Cincinnati, Ohio. Let me describe it for you. 1974, there was a flood. Six blocks of devastation, $25 worth of damage. I go back once a year for my GED reunion. Because <laughs> Newport, let me tell you something about Newport, Kentucky. It's filled with rednecks. Good old boys, southern gentlemen, and white trash. Or as some call us, po-white trash. As I tell my friends in LA, I moved to LA about 30 years ago. Didn't have a nickel in my pocket. Now I'm a half a million dollars in debt. And I have nothing to show for it, nothing. I hear people on TV all the time, redistribute the wealth, redistribute the wealth. I'm from Kentucky, we need teeth. <laughs> those politicians have all those teeth. Do you ever see them smile? Give us your teeth. Then you hear people go, income inequality, income inequality. That means there's some people that have a lot of money and some people that are poor and have no money. Their idea is you take away from the people that have the money, give it to the people that don't have the money, and we're all equal. We're all happy. Now, right now, I'm okay with this program, if it happens, because I have no money. <laughs> but with my luck, I win the lottery. <laughs> but they'll take away my money, and I won't be happy. And a lot of times, I'm not happy with money because that recession really hit me. You see, I invested in gold coins. The problem was, inside was chocolate. <laughs> well, I want to tell you what happened recently. A friend of mine, I've been in LA for a while. I've gone to some Beverly Hill parties. It's not a big deal. You go out of curiosity, but I'm a peasant. It's not my type of people. And he wanted me to go with him, so I said, okay. And it's Beverly Hills, the mansions, white wine, brie, designer clothes. I'm a brew wings and target guy. <laughs> I don't fit. So I'm walking around, I'm listening to these ladies talking. They were in an intense conversation. And it was about the fact that women outlive men by 10 years. Did you know that's a medical fact, that women outlive men by 10 years? And then I realized why so many men are getting sex changes to become women. <laughs> They're not transitioning to become women, they want to live. <laughs> now, I, when I got home, I started researching this. Why do women outlive men? And I have a theory. It's based on verbiage. A woman's verbiage is 4,000 times a day to a man's 1,000. That's 3,000 more times verbiage a day. <laughs> 30 years of that, you're a dead man. You can't take that. <laughs> Men have hair in their ears. That is not hair in the ears. That's a BS filter. That's what that is. That's made so he can survive. Think of your grandpa. The older he gets, the more that hair grows on that ear. None on the head, but that ear. He could do a comb over there. 
So this party started taking a different tone when they found out I was from Kentucky. Had a couple people talking to me. A uh, lady said, are you really from Kentucky? I said, well, you don't joke about a thing like that. <laughs> a guy said to me, do you own a gun? I said, no, I do not. Well, people from down south have guns. I said, I don't. Why not? I said, because I would shoot people. <laughs> In fact, I'd shoot you right now if I had a gun. <laughs> and then somebody piped up, do you believe in the electric chair? I said, I believe in electric bleachers. <laughs> now they started gathering around. They were smelling blood, okay? And boy, the questions started coming to me. What do, what do you think about transvestites? I don't think about them. I have enough trouble with women in women's clothes, let alone a man in women's clothes. <laughs> I bet you're not a part of the uh, ACLU. <laughs> oh, that, that's the anagram for all criminals love us. <laughs> <laughs> what about the LGBTQ community? LBTQ, BLT, XYZ, we're running out of letters on these people. Now the questions were coming left and left and left and left. And I thought of something I heard the other day. Colorado has not allowed uh, Donald Trump on the ballot. And I've been dating this girl. And I told her Colorado is the most liberal state. They were the first one to legalize gay marriage and pot on the same day. She said, that's in the Bible. I said, what? I never heard that. She says, yeah, the Bible says, if two men lie together, they should be stoned. Hey, as far as I'm concerned, it was a happy ending because we've been going together. And I want to tell you, Happy New Year, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, oh, that was, Jeff, that was great. I wondered where you were going with that Bible verse. I couldn't imagine. Uh, I want to tell you, you're pretty in pink. Thank you. And I want to check your ear. Uh, listen, <laughs> I am that guy. I've been married almost 50 years, believe me. I totally get it if, if anyone ever did. Hey, Jeff, Big Daddy Wayne is headlining the Ahern Luxury Boutique Hotel, and he's going to be doing that in Las Vegas, February the 1st through the 3rd. You can find links to his dry bar comedy special and more at Huckabee.tv. Now, the big daddy of announcers, Keith Bilbrey, is going to tell us what's coming up on the show. Keith? <laughs> well, after that introduction, well, up next, Huck's hero, Blake Brewer, talks about the Legacy Letter Challenge. Then a very important conversation with Mike Huckabee and Yale Eckstein from Israel. All that and more to come on Huckabee. TV and get your very own Made in the USA Huckabee mugs, t-shirts, and more. Welcome back. Man, we have fun here in the theater for the show. One of the reasons we invite you to come and be a part of our studio audience, you can get tickets at Huckabee.tv. And you know what you get in addition to a ticket? You get to hear a whole lot more of the very best band in all of America. Of course, I'm talking Trey Corley and the Music City Connection.
Well, when my next guest was just 19 years old, heartbreaking tragedy struck his family. But one special letter changed his life and set him on a course to help fathers all over the world. That's why he is our this week's Huck's Hero. When I was 19 years old, my dad and I were snorkeling together in Hawaii, and tragically, my dad ended up drowning. In a matter of minutes, it went from the one of the best days of my life to the worst. And I remember th standing next to my dad's body, thinking, what the heck just happened? Like, I was literally just out there in the water with my dad. And I began to ask myself some questions. How are we about to make it? How am I gonna make it without him? Fast forward a couple hours and now we're back in the condo and I'm sitting on the edge of the bed in the back bedroom by myself, still just in total shock. And my mom appeared in the doorway holding something. And she said, Blake, I have found something in your dad's briefcase, something that I know he was gonna give you on this trip. I had no idea what she was talking about, but she walked across the room and she handed me a letter from my dad. Uh, apparently, he had been working on this for a couple months. He had no idea that he was about to die. I had no idea that this would be his final words to me. But as I read this letter, a sense of peace just came over me. I was comforted by his words. Um, I felt hope, hope that I was gonna make it. And so my dad was a man of faith. And so as I got to the last line of this letter, I, I really believe God um, allowed him to write this. He wrote, as you're being faithful to the Bible and to God, you're often gonna find yourself in the minority here on earth. But I assure you that in heaven, you'll be in the majority. Love your dear old dad. And I remember reading that thinking, I'm gonna see my dad again. So I cannot imagine my life without this letter from my dad. Please welcome the founder of the Legacy Letter Challenge, Blake Brewer. That is just beautiful to see this testimony. Well, Governor, thanks for having me here. And first of all, I do want to say my family lives in Arkansas, and they mm -hmm. told me to tell you they love your daughter. They don't love me, just well, my daughter? They're okay with you, and they love your daughter. That's okay. I love her, too, and I'm very proud of her. And I'm glad they're living in Arkansas. Oh, of course. I'm a Razorback. I'm a You went to great. school at Fayetteville, didn't you? Yes, sir. But my dad's letter, I can't imagine my life without that letter. And he had no idea, obviously. It was total accident, unexpected drowning, and you had no idea that he had already prepared it. I mean, God orchestrated at least the transmission of that letter to you for such a moment. How good is God that he allowed my mm. dad to write that letter? My dad had no idea. Um, you know, we're out there snorkeling. I did my best to try to save him, wasn't able to. And then at, at the exact right time, I got that letter. At the time when you read that letter from your dad, obviously it had a deep impact upon you. But at that moment, you could not have imagined that it would become your life's work is to encourage fathers to write letters to their children. Oh, yeah, I had no idea. It wasn't until uh, a few years ago when my children were even younger 
and I'm, you know, looking at my children. I'm looking at the world that they're growing up in. I mean, our culture is in chaos. I'm like, man, I've got to be a good dad here. I've got to protect my children. I've got to provide for them. Man, what do I do? I know what I'll do. I'll write them a letter. Mm. And so I began to write this letter, and it was, it was really difficult. I'm staring at a blank sheet of paper like, what the heck am I about to write? But it was, I knew I had to finish. And so when I finished this letter, uh, it felt amazing. Mm. Like I knew I had created something of value for them. Uh, and I realized, like, as, as I was doing it for them, this was for me. Mm. Uh, and so then I gave it to my children. But it was really through that process that just one day I was like, I can help more people get a letter from their dad. Mm. And so that's where the mission started, to help one million dads write at least one letter to their children. Like, what kind of things do you hear from dads who write the letters and from, from their children who get these letters? Yeah, I was talking to a, uh, a guy who had got a letter from his dad. Yeah. Um, I helped his dad write the letter. His, um, his dad was in the military and mm. had been deployed a lot. I mean, great family, great dad. And it was such an honor for me to help this guy because he served our country. My dad was so patriotic, so to help him write this letter. Well, I talked to his son, young 20s, and he said, the, the first time I read that letter from my dad, it was the closest I'd ever felt to him in my mm. life. And then he said, I read it every single week, sometimes mm. multiple times a week. Another uh, daughter, uh, she gets this letter, and she's a young mom. And she gets it from her dad. And great family. Um, she knew uh, you know, that her dad loved her, but she said, I didn't know how much my dad loved me. And, and I was telling myself a story that my dad loved my brothers more than me. Mm. But now I read this, and this brings so much closure in my life to know how much my dad loves me. You now travel all over the country, and you help people to write their legacy letter. I mean, in speaking events and churches in different ways, I'm sure there are people who think, yeah, I can do that. But sometimes they need the stimulus of being there and having somebody say, let's do it right now. I mean, so many people that, um, man, I've been meaning to do this, yeah. right? Uh, but we've had so many people go through the program who say, who would say, man, I am not a writer at all. And some people are authors of books. And one of the, every single one of them says, you helped me write a better letter than I would have on my own. If anyone comes to our website and donates even a dollar to what we're doing, hey, we will help you write your legacy letter. Um, we're doing some live presentations virtually. Um, so anyone who's watching, man, I will help you write your legacy letter. That's a beautiful thing. I wanna urge you, don't waste another day. Get started writing your legacy letter today. Even if you're not suddenly taken away, as Blake's dad was, it's important to think about what you want to pass along to your children and your grandchildren. If you go to Huckabee.tv, we'll get you links to the Legacy Letter Challenge, and you can follow Blake and have him speak to your group or your company or your church. But right now, Keith is going to demonstrate his radio announcer legacy. He's going to tell us what's next. Well, it's my pleasure, Governor. Next, a very important message from Mike Huckabee and Yale Eckstein all the way from Israel. Then stick around for an inspiring country music performance by the one and only Nico Moon. Well, I'm so grateful for our friends at Samaritan's Purse who never fail to respond to the most disastrous emergencies all over the world. No matter the storm or trouble that comes, Samaritan's Purse volunteers are on the ground working day and night to help these communities 
and to reflect the love of Christ to everyone they come into contact with. If you're not already supporting this wonderful ministry, I hope you will consider joining their mission today and experience the immense fulfillment that comes with being part of such a wonderful and important work of God. You can do so. Just scan the QR code or you can call the number on your screen. Thank you and God bless you. Well, while I was in Israel, I spent time with my dear friend, Yale Eckstein, the president and CEO of the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews. Now you hear a lot about the organization here on TBN, but this was a historic moment when I got to see the vital importance of what they do during a time of genuine crisis, a war threatening Israel's existence. I recorded an interview with her in Tel Aviv, and she said some things that all supporters of Israel need to hear. Here's that conversation. Yael, you have been incredibly involved with the organization, International Fellowship of Christians and Jews, distributing assistance to people since October the 7th. Tell us about some of the things that the fellowship has been able to do. Well, the fellowship was on the ground as terrorists were still roaming. We were bringing food to the elderly. We were helping when people were freed from their bomb shelters and their loved ones were taken hostage or killed. We were bringing them food and shoes because all of their belongings were destroyed. And so the needs have changed, but we've continued to be on the ground. For example, in Sterot, you might have been there yeah. during this trip. There are 500 elderly who stayed behind who said we would rather die in our homes than live as refugees. And so there's no supermarkets open, there's no neighbors, there's no one to take care of them. So the fellowship goes every week, brings them food, brings them volunteers um, to sit with them, to visit them, to tell them there are Christians in America who love you, you're not alone. And to hear that message as rockets are falling, as your city's been evacuated, as your loved ones have been killed or kidnapped, the fact that Christians abroad are with them, I, I just think of God with us within our despair, within our sadness. and and. It's this message of hope that you're not alone. I think since October the 7th, more people have realized the extraordinary work you do, the largest relief organization in all of the state of Israel. Uh, but the needs have increased dramatically since then. You're, you're even supplying things that is not typical. I mean, it's normally food and clothing and basic things, bulletproof vests. Yeah, I, I never thought, Governor Huckabee, that we'd get to a place where we would say, these bulletproof vests are the difference between yeah. life or death for the civilian first responders. Yeah. And what we saw was on the northern border, where every single day there are anti-tank missiles being launched at people and at mm. cities and rockets coming over the border. And if, God forbid, it gets worse, we could have 200,000 rockets in one day launched at Israel. And on the southern border, where you were there, you feel the ground shaking. And the civilian first responders didn't have bulletproof vests and people were dying. And so we went and we distributed over 5,000 bulletproof vests to civilian first responders on the northern border, on the southern border, in Judea and Samaria. And it's already saved dozens of lives in a direct way. Are, are you afraid personally? I mean, you, you, you live here, your family's here, you have children here. You're all over the country in some of the most challenging situations. You hear bombs going off in the background, missiles flying over. On a personal level, that's got to be stressful to you and to your family to, to live with this threat every single day. I don't know how people live without faith. Mm. And it's a time where I've held on to God and God's calling on my life more than ever before. Mm. And so I think when you have God on your life and you feel a calling, 
for yourself, for your family, for your people, that calling and that faith is louder than the fear. Mm. So I can't say I've never been scared, but I can say that God has never abandoned me. What can Christians in America do to help our friends in Israel? Because I believe Christians in America are praying for Israel. They're concerned. They want to be helpful. They, they want to make sure that the people of Israel know we stand with them. What can we do? The fact that we know that Christians want to stand with us, that they are standing with us, that they're praying for us, that they're defending us on every front is something that's historic and biblical and prophetic and new. Hmm. We've all learned about the Oscar Schindlers hmm. and the Ten Booms. And we always say, if we were in the Holocaust, would we have done that? Yeah. Would there be, how many Christians would there be now? Mm-hmm. Dur- during the easy times, Christians are standing with us. What about when it gets hard? Are they going to turn their back on us? And what we've seen in Israel is the opposite. That as times get hard, as it's even threatening sometimes to stand with Israel, our Christian friends have done more to be vocal. I was uh, speaking to, to a mutual friend, uh, Penny Nance. Yes. And she said to me, Elle, I sent out a note to all of my people on campuses and said, go to the Israel rally, stand with the Jews. And they all wrote back, there are no rallies. They're too scared of the Jews on campus. She said, so then the Christians need to do the Israel rallies and let the Jews join if they want. And for me, that summarizes it. Between the food and the thousands of meals that the fellowship is distributing every day to people in need, the bulletproof vests that are saving lives, the Christians who are saying the Jewish community is too scared right now, we're going to lead it. Mm What the Christian community can do for Israel is to continue to stand for Israel, which isn't a given, to pray for Israel. And whether it's $5 or $25, in a tangible way to bless Israel, because that $5 and $25, when put together, transforms into thousands of Holocaust survivors getting food. So I think the Christian community just has to continue staying strong because it's the same enemy that we're facing. And the more the Christian community stands for Israel, I believe the stronger the Christian community will be. I believe that as well. And uh, we do stand with you and pray for the peace of Jerusalem. God bless you, my friend. We will never forget it, Governor. I want you to know that we will never forget it. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews, and if you'd like to learn how you can help them, help the people of Israel during this dark time of greatest need, visit Huckabee.tv. We have a direct link to them. Right now, we have some really exciting finish in store for the show. Keith Bilbrey is standing by. He's pretty excited to tell you all about it right now. Well, don't go away. Country music artist Nico Moon performs right after the break on Huckabee. next week for best-selling author Mitch Albom and the sweet, sweet sounds of Pablo Cruz. Welcome back. Nico Moon first came to fame co-writing hits with Zac Brown. His first solo single, Good Time, hit number one on the country charts. He's since released a string of hits on his own, 
while the eight number one hits that he's written for artists from Morgan Wallen to Rascal Flatts have earned him a CSAC Country Songwriter of the Year Award. His latest single, it's called Falling For You, and he's got a new album and a single, Better Days. That comes out the 19th of this very month. He also happens to be the founder of the Happy Cowboy Foundation. I love the name of that. It helps victims of addiction. I want you to give a big welcome to a wonderful guy and a terrific, talented artist, Nico Moon. Nico, welcome. How's it going? Great Doug? to have you here. It's great to be here. When you grew up, you got interested in music because of your dad. And yes. he was a he, he played music, but when your mom got pregnant with you, he said, I'm getting off the road. I'm gonna drive trucks so I can be home with the with the boy. He did. He got off the road at 23 and became a full-time truck driver. He just retired last year and i'm so grateful that i grew up with creative parents that really love music and always um i guess pose it as an option to me you know yeah, because sometimes of, it can get relegated as a hobby you yeah know? parents kind of discourse that you can never make a living at it yeah exactly and your parents encouraged you they to did. pursue your dream they did they nurtured it they hey, said you know if you really want to go for it you can do it Nico, it's kind of worked out pretty well. I think they were pretty <laughs> smart parents. You know, and, and that's something I wish every parent would do is to find out what his or her child really is, is geared up for yeah, passionate and about. help them to do it. Absolutely. You were a songwriter, perhaps more than you were a singer until you decided to go out on your own and sing your own stuff. But yeah. when you're a songwriter and you're writing stuff, you give it to a Morgan Wallen or Rascal Flatts and they make a big hit. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you ask yourself, I should have recorded that. I'd have been the hit maker. Does that ever happen? No, because when I sit down to write a song, yeah? I already have in my mind if I'm writing for myself or for somebody else. Oh, really? Yeah. So, like, for instance, if I'm writing a song for the Zach Brown Band, I'll put on my imaginary <laughs> uh, beanie, you know, and my imaginary leather vest and my imaginary five kids. <laughs> and, then, and then I say, okay, now what do I want to write about? So... What's been the biggest thrill that you've had, uh, you know, going out on the stage and hearing the people just love your music? There's got to be something internally that just clicks when that happens. For me, it's the connection with people. Yeah. I have found that music is the best way I can connect with mm. people. And every single night when I look out there and I see that everybody's kind of hitting the pause button for the moment <laughs> on all the stresses of life, because yeah. as we know, modern reality can be yeah. so stressful sometimes. Yes, it can. And we're just enjoying life, celebrating life in that moment, to me, uh, that's that's the greatest gift that I've gotten from this. And Have you got 20 seconds to tell me what the Happy Cowboy Foundation is all about? Yeah, so the Happy Cowboy Foundation is launching January 19th hmm. with the new album. Wonderful. And to make a long story short, it's going to help people get therapy that are looking for it but can't afford it. Wonderful. So uh, anybody can go to the happycowboyfoundation.org to donate or to sign up. And we got all these amazing organizations that we work with that provide therapy uh, for people that are looking Who for it. Who can't love a happy cowboy? I mean, it's, it's just natural, right? Well, Keith, while Nico gets ready to perform for us, I want you to tell our viewers how they can keep up with all the latest from Nico Moon. Just go to Huckabee.tv to find all the links to his music, tour dates, and more, including the new album, Better Days, and to the Happy Cowboy Foundation. Now, performing his upcoming single, the title track from Better Days, here's Nico Moon. No matter who you are, if you're going through hard times right now, just know 
Better days are ahead. When the stars are burning now, and the waves are crashing in, running circles in my mind got me searching for a light that can guide me home again. When I'm in a hurricane. And the water start to rise While the lonely and the thunder want to try and take me under But I'm swimming against the tide I've been caught in stormy weather Nothing lasts forever the morning sunrise gonna remind me I still got good friends that I never met And some big dreams that I'm trying to catch And some memories Get, but I still ain't got to me It's a simple life that I want to live in Not a love that I gotta give in Couple checks off the bucket list That I still ain't got to me So when I think my bed is gonna break I hold on to the hope of better days When I'm drifting in the deep And I'm looking for someone Oh, you're always there to find me Just in time to remind me The best is yet to come Cause I've got good friends that I never met And some big dreams that I'm trying to catch And some memories that I want to get But I still ain't got to make It's a simple life that I want to live in That I still ain't got to me So when I think my bend is gonna break I hold on to the hope Of living in the moment Instead of drowning in the past Cause time it keeps on rolling You gotta learn to make it last I still got Good friends that I never met And some big dreams that I'm trying to catch And some memories that I want to get And I know I'm about to make It's a simple life that I want to live A whole lot of love that I got to give A couple checks off the bucket list I just can't wait to make So when I think my bend is gonna break Hold on to the hope of better days. Better days, oh, better days. Better days.